Welcome to the JPGN podcast for August 2009. I'm James Liu. This podcast will outline selected articles from this month's issue of the Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition. For more information and to access the complete articles, please visit us online at www.jpgn.org or visit our society webpage at www.naspagan.org. Our first article is entitled Autoimmune Hepatitis by Miele Vergani et al. Autoimmune hepatitis is characterized by inflammation on liver biopsy, circulating non-organ-specific autoantibodies, and increased levels of IgG in the absence of a known etiology. The two types of juvenile autoimmune hepatitis are recognized according to their seropositivity for smooth muscle and or antinuclear antibody in type 1, or liver-kidney microsomal antibody in type 2. The latter presents more acutely at a younger age and commonly with IgA deficiency. There is a female predominance in both types. The duration of symptoms before diagnosis, clinical signs, family history, associated autoimmune disorders, response to treatment, and long-term prognosis are similar in both groups. Immunosuppressive treatment with steroids and azathioprine induces remission in 80% of cases. These treatments should be started promptly to avoid progression to cirrhosis. Relapses are common and are often due to non-adherence. Drugs effective in refractory cases include cyclosporin and mycophenolate mofetil. Long-term treatment is usually required, with only some 20% of type 1 patients able to discontinue therapy successfully. In childhood, sclerosing cholangitis with strong autoimmune features, including interface hepatitis and serological features identical to autoimmune hepatitis type 1, is as prevalent as autoimmune hepatitis. It affects equally boys and girls. Differential diagnosis relies on cholangiographic studies. In autoimmune sclerosing cholangitis, liver parenchymal damage responds satisfactorily to immunosuppressive treatment, while bile duct disease tends to progress. Our second article is entitled Association Between Genotypes and Phenotypes in Celiac Disease by Gujanstotter et al. Celiac disease is a genetically driven immunological intolerance to dietary gluten with a wide range of clinical presentations. The aim of this study was to investigate 1. the heritability of the phenotype in celiac disease and 2 the influence of the phenotype of different genes associated with the disease. 107 families with at least two siblings with celiac disease were collected. The patients were grouped in symptom grades based on clinical presentation, age at diagnosis, and sex. Stratification analyses of different genotypes, such as the HLA DQA1 and DQB1 genotypes, as well as the CTLA4 plus 49A slash G polymorphism, were performed. The heritability of the celiac disease phenotype was estimated to be 0.45. Significant association and linkage was found between clinical presentation and the CTLA4 plus 49A slash G polymorphism, but not for other genotypes. No correlation was found between genotypes and age at diagnosis or sex. This study indicates that heritability determines the phenotype in celiac disease, and the CTLA4 plus 49A slash G polymorphism is correlated to the clinical presentation. Our next article is entitled 
Celiac disease revealed in 3% of Swedish 12-year-olds born during an epidemic by Mylios et al. During the time period between 1984 and 1996, Sweden experienced a marked epidemic of celiac disease in children younger than two years of age. This rise in disease was partly attributed to changes in infant feeding. The objective of this study was to determine the prevalence of celiac disease in 12-year-old children born in 1993 during the epidemic. This group of patients included those who were symptomatic as well as those who were asymptomatic but detected through screening methods. All 6th grade children in participating schools were invited to be included in the study, which involved over 10,000 children. All serum samples were analyzed for anti-tissue transglutaminase IgA and total serum IgA. Some were also tested for anti-TTG IgG and endomesial antibodies. Based on these studies, a small intestinal biopsy was recommended for all children with suspected undiagnosed celiac disease. 75% of families, or over 7,500 children, were included in the study. Previously diagnosed celiac disease was found in 67 of those children. Based on the serum studies, another 192 children were recommended to get small intestinal biopsies. Biopsies were performed in 180 of those children, and based on those biopsies, celiac disease was verified in 145 children. Based on these findings, the authors found that the total prevalence of celiac disease in this cohort was 3%. The authors concluded that the prevalence of celiac disease in this group of children, with two-thirds of cases undiagnosed prior to screening, is threefold higher than the usually suggested prevalence of 1%. Moreover, the authors hypothesized that a contributing factor to the unexpectedly higher prevalence of celiac disease in this study may be related to an abrupt introduction of gluten during infancy, often without ongoing breastfeeding, which was the prevailing feeding practice at that time. Our next article is entitled, Technical Limitations in Detection of Gastroesophageal Reflux in Neonates, by DeFiori et al. These authors studied the difference between pH monitoring and multi-channel impedance monitoring in infants in an effort to find out how many reflux events detected by pH probe are missed by impedance monitoring. In 80 preterm babies and 39 term babies, they found reflux events identified by pH probe but not by the impedance probe. Of the total 2,572 reflux events detected by pH probe, 59% were not detected by impedance. The authors found that a significantly higher percentage of reflux events in preemies, 54%, were not detected by impedance monitoring compared to only 42% in term babies. The authors further described the reasons for the failure of the impedance probe to detect events documented by the pH probe. 13% were not flagged because they failed to meet the impedance monitoring scoring criteria, 12% because of technical artifact, and 11% because of an air bolus. The remaining 64% of acid reflux events not flagged by impedance were missed because there was no change in impedance during the event. 154 of these 978 reflux events were in the setting of low impedance throughout the study, which the authors point out may be due to esophageal inflammation. 430 were accompanied by a transient decrease in impedance prior to the event. And finally, 175 of the 978 acid reflux events missed by impedance because they were not accompanied by a change in impedance were preceded by another reflux event within the 30 seconds prior.
The authors proposed that delayed clearance of fluid from the esophagus in less mature infants may explain why many acid reflux events are not detected by multi-channel impedance monitoring. Our next article is entitled, Infliximab Therapy in Children with Concurrent Perianal Crohn's Disease, Observations from Reach, by Crandall et al. Using post hoc analyses, the authors evaluated the effect of infliximab upon concurrent perianal Crohn's disease in a subpopulation of 31 patients from REACH, a randomized trial of 112 children with moderately to severely active luminal disease. The Pediatric Crohn's Disease Activity Index perirectal subscore was used to assess perianal symptom activity and therapeutic response. Patients with no symptoms received a score of zero. Those with 1 to 2 indolent fistula, scant drainage, and no tenderness received a score of 5, and those with active fistula, drainage, tenderness, or abscess received a score of 10. Initial subscores of 10 or 5 that decreased to 0 were considered complete responses. Subscores of 10 that decreased to 5 were considered partial responses. All patients were followed through week 54. 22 patients with baseline perianal disease were randomized at week 10 following a 3-dose infliximab induction regimen. At week 2, 40.9% of patients with symptomatic perianal disease at baseline attained response. At week 54, 72.7% of patients with symptomatic perianal disease attained response. Nine patients developed perianal signs and symptoms during treatment. Seven had complete response, and two had no response at week 54. The incidence of adverse events for patients with perianal symptoms and symptoms at baseline and those in the overall REACH population was similar. This cohort shows that infliximab rapidly reduced concurrent perianal disease signs and symptoms. Our next article is entitled, Partial External Biliary Diversion in Children with Progressive Familial Intrahepatic Cholestasis and Allergies Disease, by Yang et al. Partial external biliary diversion is a promising treatment for children with progressive familial intrahepatic cholestasis, or PFIC, and allergies disease. Little is known about long-term outcomes. The authors performed a retrospective chart review of all patients undergoing partial external biliary diversion at the University Medical Center of Groningen. Between 2000 and 2005, partial external biliary diversion was performed in 14 children with severe pruritus. 11 patients had PFIC with a mean age of 5.3 years, 3 patients with allergies with a mean age of 7.4 years. Stature was below two standard deviations in 50% of these patients. Median preoperative serum bile salt concentration was 318 micromole per liter. 29% had severe liver fibrosis and 71% had mild to moderate fibrosis. One patient underwent a liver transplantation at three years after biliary diversion. Two years postoperatively, 50% were without pruritus and 21% had mild pruritus. In 29%, pruritus had not improved, and three of them had severe fibrosis preoperatively. In patients with mild to moderate fibrosis, biliary diversion decreased serum bile salts. Bile salts did not decrease in patients with severe fibrosis. Two years after biliary diversion, 27% had stature two standard deviations below the mean.
The authors conclude that at a median follow-up of 3.1 years after biliary diversion, pruritus was relieved in 75%. Bile salt levels and growth were improved in most patients. Longer follow-up is needed to determine whether partial external biliary diversion can postpone or avoid the demand for liver transplantation. Our next study is entitled, A Randomized Control Trial of Feeding a Concentrated Formula to Infants Born to Women Infected by Human Immunodeficiency Virus, by Winter et al. The authors tested the hypothesis that concentrated formula begun within the first two weeks of life increases growth in infants born to HIV-infected mothers. HIV-exposed infants from the U.S., Bahamas, and Brazil were randomized in a double-blind controlled trial to receive either a concentrated formula at 26 kilocalories per ounce or standard formula at 20 kilocalories per ounce for eight weeks. This paper presents results for infants who were not determined to be HIV-infected based on testing at four weeks. The primary outcomes were safety, tolerability, and growth in weight and length. The study had 2,097 infants enrolled, of whom 1,998 were uninfected and had study formula dispensed. At weeks 4 and 8, Uninfected infants receiving concentrated formula showed higher energy intake compared with uninfected infants receiving standard formula. By week 8, uninfected infants assigned to concentrated formula weighed more than infants on standard formula. There were no consistent differences in measures of tolerability, and rates of discontinuation or perceived formula intolerance were similar between treatment groups. The authors were able to conclude that a concentrated formula is well-tolerated and results in increased weight gain compared with standard formula. Until the HIV status of an infant is reliably determined, early introduction of a concentrated formula in HIV-exposed children may have beneficial effects on growth. The role of early nutritional intervention remains to be determined for individuals living in countries with endemic malnutrition for whom formula feeding is a viable option. Our next article is entitled, Moving from Tube to Oral Feeding in Medically Fragile Nonverbal Toddlers, by Davis et al. The authors describe a 14-week outpatient protocol for transitioning from gastrostomy tube to oral feeding in medically complicated toddlers. The team ensured eating skills were mastered before treating patients for eight weeks with continuous gastrojejunal drip tube feedings and a low-dose tricyclic antidepressant and or gabapentin. They prescribed six weeks of megesterol for hunger provocation while withdrawing tube feedings. A chart review after treatment demonstrated that nine subjects were exclusively eating orally and one was eating 50% orally. Finally this month, we have a short communication entitled Prebiotics Improve Gastric Motility and Gastric Electrical Activity in Preterm Newborns by Indrio et al. The purpose of this study was to determine the effect of prebiotics on gastric motility in preterm infants. The authors of this study enrolled 20 healthy neonates in a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial. After a feeding period of 15 days, Gastric electrical activity was measured by electrogastrography, or EGG, and the gastric emptying time was studied by ultrasound technique. 
The results showed that there was no difference in daily increase of body weight between infants receiving prebiotics and infants receiving placebo. The percentage of time in which propagation was detected in the EGG signal was twice in newborns receiving formula with prebiotics compared to placebo, and the gastric half-emptying time was 30% faster in the prebiotic group than the placebo group. Prebiotic oligosaccharides can modulate electrical activity and gastric emptying, and might improve the intestinal tolerance of enteral feeding in preterm infants. This concludes the JPGN podcast for August 2009. The executive producer is Daniel Gelfond. The editor-in-chief of JPGN is Eric Sibley. The JPGN podcast is recorded by the Pediatric GI Fellows of Stanford University. For more information and to access the full articles, please visit us online at www.jpgn.org or visit our society webpage at www.naspagan.org. I'm James Liu. Thank you.